Peace be with you, church. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It is a joy to be with you this morning and to meditate on the law of God and to preach the word of God to you. It is always my hope when I stand in the pulpit, whether that be on Friday night with a little music stand or with something a little bit different, that the word of God would transform my heart along with yours, knowing that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God, or by implication woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So to that end, as we look into the Word of God, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Word to make us wise unto salvation and to give us all things that we need to live a life of godliness. Lord, we know that your Word is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of bone and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from the sight of your word. So Lord, would you do that penetrating work in our hearts that we would live holy lives before you and embrace the gospel evermore. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The big idea for my sermon this morning, there we go, The big idea for my sermon this morning is that the law, when rightly applied, directs our lives towards love of God and neighbor and reveals our need for the gospel. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to the book of 1 Timothy and chapter 1 or turn them on if you have the discipline to keep on the Bible app and not be distracted. Well, as Pastor Terrence mentioned earlier, Pastor Hanley gave me the choice whether or not to preach on this text or to choose my own passage for this morning. And it was tempting to either pick a passage that I already had a sermon written on or to pick a passage maybe that talks about one of my favorite theological points or something like that. Uh, and, And while those things were tempting, I thought, what a better way to demonstrate the confidence of the word to just preach the next Uh, passage that was slotted in the text or in the the sermon series. And so here we are. Um, And so in the psalm I read just a minute ago, the psalmist says that his delight is in the law of the Lord. And even the, the longest passage of the Bible, Psalm 119, is all about the law of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but it, it seems a little bit odd that the psalmist's delight would be in the law. Not the gospel, not the grace or the love of God, or in the Old Testament, not the hesed and emmet, the loving, faithful, uh, covenantal love of God for Israel, but his delight is on the law of the Lord. You probably hear things like we should be a gospel-centered in some way or another. We should live a gospel-centered life, be a gospel-centered church. Uh, or maybe have gospel-centered theology or Bible studies, or I am a firm believer of gospel-centered youth ministry. And hopefully that means something more than just a jargony word. 
And all these things are very appropriate for us as New Testament Christians, assuming we each individually identify as such. It is a good thing to be gospel-centered. But what about the law? When we reflect on the law of God, there is a danger to make the Christian life about a set of following rules. Don't steal, murder, or get angry with someone without just cause. Don't watch pornography. Stay celibate until marriage. Don't cheat on your spouse, your taxes, or your homework. Be a good boss. Be a good employee. Respect your parents. Read your Bible. And of course, we could add the list on and on and on to reduce the Christian life to a set of do's and don'ts. But the law is something very peculiar. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we don't like laws. We don't like rules. We want freedom, right? We, we don't like it when our parents restrict us and say you can only have two hours of screen time a day, right? We don't like it maybe when we see the speed limit sign that says 45 when really it could be 55, right? We're, we're people that don't like rules. But on the other hand, we also live in a society with many laws and many rules. Now, we have laws in society like driving laws, and when I landed in California, this was the first time I've ever driven in California, and the GPS instructed me to make a U-turn, I immediately thought, oh no, can I make U-turns in California? I'm from Ohio, and you can't make U-turns in Ohio, but Massachusetts, you can make U-turns all over the place. Or the same thing, I thought, oh hey, there's a red light. Can I turn right on red in California? And I would like, see the, the, uh, the camera in front of me, and I'm like, oh no, can I, can I do this? <laughs> Uh, in Massachusetts, red light cameras are illegal, so interesting thing. But we, we live in a place with a lot of rules. And whenever we violate the, the rules of these governing authorities, especially if it's driving, usually the fines uh, imposed on us or the penalties imposed on us are a fine or sometimes uh, a point on our driver's license uh, or something like that. But in addition to actual laws that are by a competent authority, we also have social laws, so to speak. Being from the East Coast, going back to the example of driving, I intentionally decided to be a little bit less of an aggressive driver than I am accustomed to in Boston, where if the light turns red and it, or the light turns green and there's one second before the person starts to go, we start honking the horn. And I, I started, I, I chose to be like, okay, I'm going to learn the norms of how we drive around here. Now, it's not that I would be breaking any law of man if as soon as the light turned green and the person didn't go, I started honking the horn at them, but I might break a, a social law of what is uh, accustomed to it, right? And so um, we have a lot of other social laws or social rules. Driving around in my rental car, I, I have a canned beverage, uh, an empty can, because I got a, a free drink from the airport. And I've been driving around with it now for three days, even though I could have thrown it away because I want to be environmentally friendly, right? I'm looking for a place to recycle it properly. We might feel social pressure to drive an electric vehicle or at least a hybrid. And I know in California, at some point, gas cars are supposedly going to be outlawed where any new car sold to the state, you have to even buy an EV. Whenever we break social laws, we don't pay fines, 
but we feel guilt sometimes because accepted norms, and we, you know, I, I, for, for me, I don't want to throw away the can without recycling it because I would feel a little bit guilty knowing that I could have just waited a little bit longer and found a recycling can. Or we may even feel shame, so much to so that we could even feel canceled, so to speak. For our youth, you guys know this, because there are a lot of laws in the culture that is ever-moving as far as a target to hit. And if you mess up just a little bit, your life, at least feeling so, all your friends are constantly watching you on social media. If you fail to say the right thing, or if you say the wrong thing, or don't support the right cause, then there is social ostracization from that. So this brings me back to the main point why I'm talking about the law of man and social laws. Uh, well, what is the purpose of the law of the Bible, especially for us living in a New Testament age? As a clarifying comment, when I speak about the law of the Bible and when Paul does in this passage, it has a more narrow sense of the law of the Torah, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the stipulations of the covenant that God had with his people of Israel, and more specifically seen in certain passages or in certain books like Deuteronomy or Leviticus, as I know the college students are studying. So our passage this morning is uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And let, let me just read that for us again. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So first thing, what, what is the, the purpose of the law? The law directs us towards the love of God and neighbor. And here's where I see this in, in verse 8. It says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Remember the, the context of the passage where Paul is instructing Timothy on how to deal with these false teachers that are making up stories about Smosis and Smerium that are basically taking these Old Testament law and adding things to it, right? And so they're distorting the law, and in verse 5 and in verse 6, it says this. It says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into these vain discussions about Moses and Samaria and so forth. So then Paul is addressing or asking the question, well, if these false teachers are distorting the law, then is the law the problem? And so he says, we know that the law is good if we use it lawfully. What does it mean that to, to use the law lawfully? Given the context of Paul's greater views that the law is one, and one key aspect of using the law lawfully is to use it in a way that teaches us how to love God and neighbor. Remember in verse 5, he says that the, the aim of our charge is love. This cues us in. 
Paul says that the aim of our charge is love and that false teachers have departed from these. The false teachers have departed from love, departed from the pure heart and sincere faith. Another way that you could say this is even that sound doctrine is in part a kind of doctrine that produces love of God and neighbor. Or if you're in seminary, how we would say this is sound doctrine is not only right belief, but it's also right living. For Paul, orthodoxy and orthopraxy are inevitably linked. We can see this cue again in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, where, where Paul is saying the purpose of the law is to direct us for the love of God and neighbor. It says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other command, commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Remember, the law is not the problem. The law is good, provided we use it lawfully. And while rules lead us to feel guilt and shame when we fail to keep them, they are also necessary in instructing us in how to treat one another, even when they cause frustrations. I'm thinking of my toddler, a three-year-old. We have rules for him. He does not like to follow the rules, but they are necessary for his good, just like all of us. The, the, the law is necessary for our good, for loving God and for loving neighbor. So the second thing in this passage is the law and sound doctrine. So if the law is good, how we, if we use it lawfully, how are we to use the law lawfully? Well, point one is to use it in a way that promotes love of God and love of neighbor. But then there are a few more things that we can say about it. If the law is meant that we would love God and neighbor, does that mean that we should follow the law? And if what extent... And to what extent should we follow the law? As I mentioned, I, I live now in Boston, but I actually grew up in Ohio. Uh, and I went to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so for different things like holidays or just, you know, some breaks in the summer, I would go up uh, to Ohio to visit family and friends on the occasion. And on Interstate 71, uh, or California way, the 71, between uh, Louisville and Columbus, there are these signs that say, obey the Ten Commandments. It's like a big, bold sign that says, obey the Ten Commandments. And then for like the next five miles, uh, you have a sign like every half mile that lists the different Ten Commandments on them. Sometimes there's one, sometimes there's like two or three commandments on it. From what I've gathered about California, that probably would not ever be a billboard we would see around here. It definitely would not be a billboard we see in Massachusetts. But it raises an interesting point. Why in our culture and in our church do we say things like obey the Ten Commandments, but we don't follow other weird laws like Leviticus 19.27 that says that we can't cut our hair or beard, uh, and we debate other laws like Leviticus 19.28 that uh, says you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. That's a big can be a big controversial thing. I am the Lord, says. Uh, not to mention how heavily Christians debate the Sabbath and whether or not we must follow the Sabbath and if it's a literal Sabbath and so on and so forth. So how should we follow the law? Being able to answer these questions well is important. For teens, the law can be 
quite funny with some strange commands as far as like what animal is acceptable to be sacrificed. College students, I don't know if you've gotten to this point yet in Leviticus, but there are some very strange things uh, about what animal could be sacrificed or purity rituals that must happen in order to approach God. And for youth, sometimes they memorize these passages just because they're, they're funny. But, but they, they teach us uh, about God in part and his holiness. This is what it means to be holy before God, absent from the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. In addressing sound doctrine, Paul tells Timothy he should know how to appropriately apply the law, how to use it lawfully. In youth ministry, I see this question on what parts of the law we must follow uh, still important because I've come across people in youth ministry, either youth or parents or sometimes teachers, who would say things like, uh, killing an animal is a violation of the command not to murder. So there are implications for that, of course. Uh, I've counseled youth and parents who got into a serious fight because the youth, after turning 18, wanted to get a tattoo. And then the parents were like, no. Um, or, of course, it's very frequently that the youth will say, OMG, and then parents will say, no, that's a violation of the fourth commandment. And while all these examples are nuanced and require a little bit more examination maybe into Leviticus or Exodus or the, the law itself, uh, it raises the point that it is significant in how we answer that question. And Paul is saying, hey, you know, use the law lawfully. Are we simply cherry-picking the laws and verses we like while hypocritically ignoring the ones we do not like? This is often a charge from those critical of Christianity, but there are good reasons for why a Christian would say we should obey the Ten Commandments or certain parts of the laws, but other commands are no longer necessary or no longer apply, at least in the same way that we should follow them. And there's a few different ways on how Christians will kind of answer this question. Some will distinguish in the law, in the Old Testament, the ceremonial versus the moral law of God. And I don't think this is wrong, but there are some challenges as far as, you know, how do we know what is God's moral law versus the ceremonial law? But in, in essence, it talks about the commands and the, the ceremonial laws are those purity laws of, you know, what it means to approach a holy God as sinful people without a mediator, Jesus Christ. But then the moral law are those laws which reflect God's moral character that apply all throughout time. And, and usually uh, this position talks about those moral laws are then reflected and reinforced in the New Testament. Another way that Christians have uh, kind of answered this question is a more covenantal view and viewing the, the law as the stipulations of the covenant of God and Israel. That, that it's a suzerain vassal treaty, you might learn if you've ever uh, taken a, a class on the law, that God made a covenant with Israel, and he promised to bless them, provided they follow the stipulations of the covenant, and those stipulations, those requirements, is the law. And then Israel's exile and the gospel eventually going out to the Gentiles is a result of Israel failing to uphold the stipulations of the covenant. And so a new covenant was necessary, and that's why Jesus came. Others may answer the question of how does the law uh, apply by talking about how God maybe deals with people uh, differently throughout different periods of time, and it was different in the Old Testament as compared to the New. 
But regardless of what view you take, we do see the law and certain commands being re-emphasized in the New Testament. And so we should have a good answer for how to answer what laws apply. What should we do? And so what exactly is Paul saying is wrong here? One, uh, one scholar, one commentary points out that the commands or the, the passages, uh, the, the vice list in verses 9 through 10, uh, where it talks about the ungodly, the sinners, and holy, profane, that they roughly correspond to the different commands of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you should have no other gods before me is the, the first of Ten Commandments, and that roughly relates to the lawless and disobedient. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, refers to the godly, ungodly, and sinners. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, relates to the unholy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, the profane. Honor your father and mother, those who strike fathers and mothers. You shall not murder murderers. You shall not commit adultery, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. You shall not steal, the enslavers. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, the liars and the perjurers. And you shall not covet whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So, in other words, there is a correlation between Paul's vice list here and the Ten Commandments. They're, they're being emphasized again, basically, by Paul. Right after the pandemic, uh, my, my youth group in Boston, we went through a series on 1 Corinthians. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is, is roughly a correlating passage to First uh, Timothy chapter 1, where there's this vice list, where Paul is saying, like, you know, don't do these things. And we came across chapter 6. And, you know, as we read through the law, I, I think, read through these, the vices, most of these things are probably not controversial. Now, some maybe are a little bit controversial, like, you know, if, if it indeed means you shall have no other gods, the kind of exclusive claim that Christians make that our God is the one only and true God. That's a little, a little bit controversial, but then there's something in this passage that is quite difficult sometimes for our, our culture to hear. In verse 10, it says, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. And in my youth group, I was uh, preaching through 1 Corinthians 6, and on, on Friday night, I was explaining this term, uh, arson koinatai, basically. Uh, arson koitais, depending upon the, the uh, rendering of the past, or the, the verse, the case of the verse, rather. Uh, and I was talking about how there are scholars who kind of take this, this uh, word, and this means men who practice homosexuality. It, it appears only in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians 6. And how there are scholars who will take this passage and say, well, this is only talking about a certain kind of homosexuality. And they're, they're basically, the, the object is to argue that it is okay. And he would say, like, you know, in 1 Timothy and in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's only talking about uh, pederasty, where a privileged man would uh, have basically a, a prepubescent boy as a sexual partner, as a sexual slave, more so would be more accurate. Uh, but I was explaining how uh, this, this passage and this, this word, it, it's very unlikely that these uh, affirming scholars are accurate. I said it a little bit more gentle to the youth than what I would say. It's very clear that it's not. The, the term here is a compound word that means one who beds a man. 
And Paul likely, even though it's only seen here in, in 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, he, he likely gets this word from Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13, where it's very clear that all forms of same-sex sexual behavior is being prohibited. I said something along those, those extent to the youth, and about a third of the youth group got up and walked out. They got out and walked out of the room, and they said, you're attacking people's identity. It took me a while to show them that I loved them. <laughs> uh, talking about the social laws, right? If we even uphold to biblical truth, in some cases, we could be canceled for that. So, what is Scripture teaching us about homosexuality from 1 Corinthians 6 and also um, 1 Timothy 1? I have three, three things. So, what, what is Scripture teaching us about homosexuality from, from these two passages? The first thing, the Bible describes homosexual behavior as a sin. The Bible describes homosexual behavior as a sin. And it is the behavior that is the sin. The ESV accurately translates this word, those who practice homosexuality. And as I mentioned earlier, the term is tied to the actions of one who does the thing. It is the action, not the temptation, that Paul is telling us is wrong in Scripture. Unwanted desires are something many brothers and sisters struggle with. In our, in our discipling, in our discipleship, and in our counseling, sound doctrine is important for helping people with unwanted temptations to help them to live holy lives. But here, Scripture says it is the practice, the action that is condemned as sinful. But it is very clear that it is sinful. Another thing that we can say that we can infer is that homosexuality is a sin like other sins. In both cases, in, in 1 Timothy 1 and in 1 Corinthians 6, we, we see that homosexuality is listed amongst a vice list of other sins. In the book, Holy Sexuality, Christopher Yuan shares this story. So I'm going to read a, a section from it. It says, Over the last few years, my dad, mom, and I have had the privilege of getting to know numerous fathers and mothers with children identifying as gay or lesbian. We've been able to personally walk with several, several of these parents through difficult stages of their journey. For many, it's been a long and emotional ride. I'll never forget meeting one particular mother. As she approached, the look on her face revealed that it took all of her strength to keep it together. She steps toward me and lowered her head into her hands. The dam broke and the tears flowed as she released her pent-up emotions. I put my hand on her shoulder and said softly, it's okay, it's okay. She tried to get out the words she'd come to say, but couldn't stop weeping. I offered a few more words of comfort to fill the void, telling her I had all the time that she needed. After a few moments, she was able to put together a sentence, I just, I just want my son to be normal. Through sobs, this devastating mother recounted that her son had told her that he was gay and was moving in with his boyfriend. She was crushed and hadn't told anyone, including her husband. She continued to express deep disappointment, wondering why this son couldn't be like her other son, normal, 
with a steady girlfriend and even a baby on the way. Somehow this mother's moral compass had been thrown off. She failed to realize that her idea of right was actually wrong. In her view, her gay son was not okay, while her fornicating one was fine. Like many today, this grieving mother wrongly equated normal, that is, all forms of heterosexuality, including extramarital relationships with moral and good. I know some of you may be thinking right now, but heterosexuality is ordained by God. Say with me and hear me out. This may be one of the most important points of the book. Without doubt, same-sex relationships are sinful. But does this mean heterosexuality in all its forms is blessed by God? Many assume it is. For decades, the aim of some Christian counselors for those with unwanted same-sex attractions has been to develop heterosexual potential. However, does the Bible truly promote and wholly bless heterosexuality in all its forms? Heterosexuality uh, constitutes the right general direction but does it adequately and fully describe how we should behave sexually? What about unmarried people? How about those not in any relationship? What is the Bible's standard for sexuality? Does heterosexuality accurately and comprehensively describe the sexual morality for everyone married and single? As evangelicals, our benchmark is scripture. Our benchmark is sound doctrine. And everything must be measured to it, to scripture. But what other opinions do we have, you may ask, other than heterosexuality and homosexuality? What we need is a completely new paradigm to represent God's sexual ethic, holy sexuality. Heterosexuality will not get you into heaven, and is not the ultimate goal of those with same-sex attraction. God commands us to be holy, for I am holy, as we see in many different passages. Because God is holy, he requires his people to be holy. Thus, the biblical opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the ultimate goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. I encourage you to to check out the book uh, for more on that. But homosexuality is is a sin like other sins. And on these sensitive subjects there is a temptation to maybe allow our culture or our preferences to impact sound doctrine. And that could be on one way or the other. I have counseled many youth who don't understand the Bible's teaching on the sexual ethic, and so there's a desire to say, well, you know, that's not really what Scripture says. For conservative evangelicals in the United States and in the West, there has been a temptation on the opposite side to say that homosexuality is the sin, is the worst thing. But scripture, we see very clearly, homosexuality is a sin, but it is a sin like other sins. The third thing I want to say about homosexuality is that the temptation is not merely a world problem. The temptation is not merely a world problem. In youth ministry, I have had several students over the years come out to me about their struggles with same-sex attraction and a few that have come out with their struggles of gender dysphoria. Some of these students, these desires are unwanted. They are following Jesus and pursuing Jesus and wanting to live a life that honors him. But this is a thorn in the flesh, a severe temptation of unwanted desires, and they are trying to figure out, how do I live a life of the disciple of Christ 
while dealing with this desire. And I've had other students, unfortunately, who have wrestled with the Bible's claim and have rejected Scripture and embraced an identity or sexuality contrary to sound doctrine and contrary to what God calls us to live, contrary to to the holiness of a disciple of Christ. Don't think there are not people in this congregation today who are not struggling with this struggle right now. We tend not to talk about it much in the Chinese Heritage Church context. It's something that it's kind of like we try to, you know, put away in a black box and maybe pretend like it doesn't exist. But Scripture tells us to bring sin into the light, and the light will shine in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Scripture calls us to bear one another's burdens and to confess our sins to one another. Are we the kind of church that can disciple and counsel those struggling with unwanted desires? That's a challenge. Third point of the message, and this comes from the first part of verse 9. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. The gospel, or the law, rather, reveals our need for the gospel. There's some tension in the passage on who the law is for. On the one hand, Paul says that the law is not laid down for the just, but the lawless and disobedient. The implication is that Christians practicing sound doctrine and living out an ethic of love are the just. But the tension is the question if anyone, even by the work of the Spirit post-conversion, can truly say that they are never lawless, never disobedient, never ungodly, or never sinful. Who among us can say we have perfectly obeyed the law of God? Even the first commandment to have no other gods Can any of us genuinely say that we have never served other things as functional gods? While sustainability and security is a good thing, while stability and security is a good thing, have we ever placed it in a place in our hearts only God belongs? What makes you angry? What are you willing to sin in order to obtain? What will cause you to sin if you lose it? This may be an indication of what a functional God in your heart is. What, what makes you angry? I confess that I myself have broken the first commandment even since arriving in L.A. We got off of the plane, uh, six-hour direct flight. Praise God, like God's grace is good. My, our son slept three hours, like half of the plane ride. That is amazing for a three-year-old toddler. If you have ever traveled with children, you know what I mean. Like, it, it's tough. We got off of the plane. Uh, we went and got our baggage, and then we, we got into a bus to, to go to the rental car place, and everybody's like cramped in together. You have all of your luggage. Uh, it's kind of hot because of all the people on the bus. That didn't bother me too much because East Coast, we're used to public transit being incredibly like jam-packed together. Then we get to the rental car place, and getting the car was smoothly, but then it took us about 45 minutes. Oh, I should say, I had to deal with the car seat, and then my expose my anger and trying to deal with all the straps of the car seat and installing it. But then we had to wait 45 minutes to exit the parking lot for the um, rental car place because everybody was checking all the paperwork. And in that moment, I was very impatient. (laughs) I was hungry. 
my son at that point was grumpy, even though he was good the whole flight, he was grumpy. We were all tired from waking up at like 4 a.m. We just wanted to get home and get food. But in that moment, I, I mean, thankfully, by God's grace, I didn't do anything too crazy. But in my heart, what I wanted, my greatest heart desire in that moment was comfort. Just wanted food, just wanted to rest, didn't want to have to sit and wait there in line. I was worshiping comfort as my primary God, more so than I was God. I wasn't thinking about God's glory. I was hungry, tired, and just wanted comfort. Maybe you're more patient than me, uh, and do not get angry in those situations, or do not worship comfort rather than God in those situations. But how do we feel when our sports team wins or loses? Ooh, I think I touched a nerve there. I'm an Ohio State fan. I get it. Ohio State lost to Michigan a couple of years in a row now. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> I cannot say when my team lost that I did not have an idolatrous disappointment. While sports is a good thing, while comfort and security and peace is a good thing, a good thing becomes a bad thing when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, as Tim Keller said. As Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols, and if we're honest with ourselves, we will realize even in the first commandment, we break regularly all the time. We worship and serve created things rather than the creator. So, the law reveals our need of the gospel. In Romans 7, Paul addresses more personally how the law reveals our need for the gospel. In my interpretation of Romans 7, if there's some seminarians or some of the other pastors, they might debate me with this one a little bit, but Paul is talking about his post-converted Christian struggle with sin. In Romans 7, Paul asks again, is the law good? He says, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, ceasing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be brought, might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. Rules cannot save us. The law could not save us. Maybe hypothetically, if we could perfectly obey the law, but we can't. We can't even get the basic Ten Commandments, and we regularly break them. Law reveals our need for the gospel. The New City Catechism uh, puts it this way. It says, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? And the answer is that we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and thus our need of a Savior. The law also teaches us and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. So that I would kind of say from 1 Timothy, the sound doctrine, a life that is lived for the love of God and the love of neighbor. 
The law cannot save because we cannot keep it. But the law points to one who did keep it perfectly on our behalf if we trust in him as our prophet, priest, and king. As Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in time of need. The law reveals our need of the gospel and points us to the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf. So, what are we to do with these? Application, I have two, two quick points. First, delight in the law as it reveals your need for Jesus. Later on in Romans 7, at the end, Paul says even more clearly and personally shows how the law points us to the gospel in verses 21 through 25. I have just the last part up there. It says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But who will deliver me? Thanks be to God that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the law on our behalf and to die on that cross. Last thing I'll say, apply the law with sound doctrine. Our hearts have an inherent temptation to use the law like the Pharisee to pray before God something to the extent, God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Whether that is the pride that maybe we feel if we already have adapted an environmentally friendly lifestyle and have purchased an EV, or you know, maybe because we follow one set of social norms, has a temptation to develop pride in us. But we should develop a sound doctrine informed by Scripture. Regardless of what culture we hold, there are frequently blind spots. So let us hold Scripture as our standard, not anything else. Let us pray. Father God, again, we thank you for your word that makes us wise to salvation and points us to the one in whom we need. God, we thank you that though we are disobedient and have disobeyed your law, that your mercy is more, that you have saved us. God, I pray for anyone here today who does not yet know this mercy, that does not yet know this grace, that does not yet follow you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, would you work in their hearts to show them the beauty of the gospel and the beauty and fulfillment of a life lived following Jesus. Pray in Jesus' name.